Last week we finished up our look at prayer, and this morning we're going to start a series called Rebuild, uh, which is going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this morning we're going to take a look at chapter 1, and guess what we run right into? Anyone? Guess? I'll give you a hint. We just finished prayer, so now we're going to look at... Yep. <laughs> what we're going to do uh, to start off, uh, as we begin the book of Nehemiah, just to kind of set the stage, we're going to do kind of a fast forward of about 1,600 years of Israelite history. No problem. It'll take five or ten minutes. Um, but I just kind of want to set the stage for where Nehemiah takes place in terms of the history of Israel. So obviously, scripturally, the beginning of uh, the scriptures are Adam and Eve, right? The, God creates everything. He creates Adam and Eve as part of creation. And we know that Adam and Eve sin right away. Pretty much first chance they get, uh, they sin and bring, you know, death and destruction on the whole world. Um, but after that, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we kind of see that cycle of death, right? We see the genealogy that continues to name people, but they then say, and then he died at this age, and he died, and then he died, and then he died. We see Cain and Abel brought death into the world. And so we see this cycle of death. Down the line, we have this man named Abram, this one guy that God chooses and makes a promise to. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land for your people, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And that becomes the heart of Israel. That one man becomes the nation of Israel. So Abraham, Abram uh, has his name changed by God to Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel that you see throughout the Old Testament. So now one of those 12 sons, his name was Joseph. He was kind of a brat. So his brothers decide to sell him into slavery. Now I know what you're thinking. That's kind of harsh. But they were going to kill him, so it was actually kind of nice. Right? Anyone? Sons? Yes. So they sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. But God was with Joseph. God was favoring and blessing Joseph. So Joseph actually thrives in Egypt, becomes a powerful person. Uh, has uh, It revealed to him by God that there's going to be a famine in the land. So Joseph is put in charge of gathering extra grain and stuff and storing it for the nation of Egypt. The famine hits. Canaan, where the rest of Joseph's family is, doesn't they don't have food. So his family ends up coming to Egypt, where he's in power, to get food. And so they're reunited as a family. I know I'm skipping a lot of details here, but just bear with me. Uh, so Joseph and his family are reunited. They're in Egypt. Joseph is in the favor of the Pharaoh at that time. And so life is good. The Israelite people begin to grow. Fast forward a little farther, that pharaoh dies, there's a new pharaoh in charge. He doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know his family. And so he starts to see this group of people, this Jewish people, that starts to grow and grow and grow. And he's afraid they're going to get too much power and start to cause problems. So he enslaves the Israelite people. Fast forward again a little bit, uh, we have Moses. God tells Moses to go to Egypt, go to Pharaoh, and tell him, let my people go. Pharaoh eventually lets him go, skipping some details again. Moses leads them through the desert towards the promised land. And in that process, God makes a covenant with his people. He gives them the law. And he's basically saying, this is exactly what I expect of you. When you obey me, when you live properly, when you treat each other the right way, you'll be blessed. If you don't, there's going to be problems that pop up. Fast forward again. They're in the land. We have David, right? The greatest king. Israel has considered David their greatest king since he was the king. Uh, his son Solomon, he was kind of a meh king. He uh, it, it builds huge amounts of wealth 
He's known for his wisdom. People come from all over the world to see him, but he's not quite what David was. And then after Solomon, you just kind of see this downward cycle of kings. Um, there are a number of kings that uh, were considered not great by the scriptures. And it's kind of interesting to pause and note that historically, if you look back, there were some very good kings. They did some very good things, but they were not obedient to God. And so the scripture says that they were not good kings. Fast forward a little bit again. We come to this time of exile. Um, so, Frank, can you pop that map up? I want to kind of set the stage here. Would it mess you up if I went over there for a minute? All right. What you have is, this is a satellite picture of Israel, or the general Middle East. So this is the Mediterranean Sea, Black Sea is up there. This is Egypt, Nile River, and right here is Israel. You can see the Dead Sea right here. Everybody with me? Yeah. All right. So what you have is God gave them this promised land. This is more or less the known world at the time, right? And God gave them this little section, which is cool. But what ends up happening in the time of the kings is that Egypt down here gains a tremendous amount of power and starts to push up this way into Israel. And Egypt at the time was a superpower. At the same time, you have Assyria up north. You have Babylon down here. They're gaining in power too. And so you have three superpowers all gaining power, all starting to compete with one another. And who's in the middle? Israel. So it, it looks kind of bleak for them. And God keeps telling them, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you. I will sustain you. But the kings were not faithful. And when the king wasn't faithful, the people followed suit. And so they end up going into exile. What happens is uh, Egypt gains power. They push in a little bit into Israel, uh, just enough to cause a problem. At the same time, uh, Assyria is next. Assyria begins to push down into the south and over that way. So they have kind of a big arch of power here. Babylon gains power, kind of takes over all of Assyria, pushes into Egypt. And then you have Persia over here, who I didn't even mention. They were kind of sitting back watching all the fun. And then they took power, and they basically took from over here, where India would be, they took that whole section up into Greece and down here and into Egypt. And so the Persians had basically taken over what most of the known world was at the time. That makes sense, more or less? All right. So during that time... Poor Israel, again, is told by God, if you obey me, I'm going to protect you. But they chose to do their own thing. They chose to go their own way. And so God just kind of stepped back and allowed to happen what was going to happen. It's always interesting to me to think about what would have happened had Israel been obedient to God in the center of three or four superpowers. What would that have looked like? Kind of interesting to think about. But they weren't. They weren't faithful. So Persia, uh, as, as the Assyrians and the Babylonians take over, they begin to remove people and exile them. The Persians did the same thing. And so they end up taking the best and brightest that Israel had, the smartest minds, the most capable people in the nation of Israel. These countries would take them and put them into work in their own government. In Jeremiah 52, uh, 28 to 30, it says that about 4,600 people were taken out of Israel and exiled. So it wasn't a huge number of people. It wasn't even, um, percentage-wise, it wasn't a great percentage of the population, but it was like the cream of the crop. 
It was the people who would be running the country. They were taken into exile. Uh, so all of that kind of leads us to this book that we're going to look at uh, about the shortest prophet in the Bible, uh, the shortest meaning height, Nehemiah. Oh, man, I'm funny. So <laughs> as you go through your scripture, um, Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra is a separate book from Nehemiah in our Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra Nehemiah is one book, and it's talking about the same period of time. Um, it was during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah that the Persian king Cyrus was allowing Jewish exiles to return from exile back into the land of Israel. Uh, that was around 516 BC, or no, excuse me, 550 BC that began to take place. Around 516 BC, Darius allows the temple to be rebuilt. So, so Israel is starting to gain back some of its identity. And you remember what the temple represented to them was God's presence, right? So their identity was so tied in that. That was a huge thing for them to be able to do that. Around 465, Ezra, uh, who was a priest, returned to Jerusalem for promoting obedience to the law. So as a priest, he was allowed to go back and kind of reestablish the law of God to his people and kind of guide them back into obedience. And then around 445 BC, Nehemiah, uh, which we're going to look at, returns to build the physical city of Jerusalem. So he begins by rebuilding the wall. And we'll be looking at that further too. Question might pop up, why would the Persian king allow this? Why did they all of a sudden, why did they exile people and then all of a sudden decide it was okay to go back? You might think he must have been a nice guy. He was not. <laughs> he was a dictator. In 488 BC, there was a rebellion in Mesopotamia. And then in 460 BC, there was a revolt in Egypt. And that particular revolution took about five years for them to put down. And so you have this huge, vast empire that they're trying to manage. And in small little pockets, you have these little rebellions that are starting to take place. You also have uh, up in the north there, you can see the Italian boot kind of. To the right of that is the, the nation of Athens or, or Greece as we know it now. Well, Greece began to gain power. The Athenians began to gain power. And they began to expand out too. And, and kind of past where we're looking now, uh, Alexander the Great comes out of there and kind of retakes the whole world that Persia had taken. And then from there, Rome takes over. Uh, but you have these little pockets of revolution. You have the Athenians starting to gain power and starting to branch out. And so the Persians are willing to allow themselves uh, to ally themselves with some of these minority groups, right? These little local areas, they're allowing them to kind of regather, to kind of start to function and govern themselves a little bit. They're still very much under the thumb of Persia, but it allows them a little flexibility and it gives Persia a little bit of leverage to say, hey, if you want to keep what you got going, you got to help us out with what's going on up north. So again, Ezra, a priest, is allowed back to Jerusalem to reestablish the law. And then Nehemiah, we're going to see, uh, is a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes is just plain fun to say. Uh, a cupbearer. I always thought that the cupbearer to the king was the dude who would bear the cup, hence the name, but they'd pour the wine into the cup and he would take a sip and if he keeled over and died, they would say, hey, I think that's poison. You should not drink it. 
right? That was his primary job. But apparently the cupbearer, remember that the, the exiles were among the cream of the crop of the people. They were among the brightest and best. And so Nehemiah did have that role of, of tasting the wine to make sure it wasn't poison for the king. But he also had regular access to the king. He was with the king on a regular basis. He held the, uh, I don't know how to say it, signet ring, signet ring, you know what I mean? The ring with the, how do you say it? Somebody help me out. Signet? Okay. Uh, so Nehemiah held the signet ring, and he also served as the chief financial officer for the entire empire. So he was a significant man. He had significant power, despite the fact that he was in exile, he had significant power and significant access to the king. So that all kind of sets the stage for, for what we're going to read in Nehemiah, right? So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, first, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. I'll read it to you, and then there's just a couple things I want to highlight. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Hakali I said that like 400 times today. That's like your uh, Armenia. <laughs> Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, excuse me, twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and distress disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So as I went through this passage, I just started to kind of uh, ask some questions about who these people were and what's going on. I found out that uh, Hikaliah is only mentioned twice, once here and once in chapter 10, verse 1. And both times it's just as a reference of being um, Nehemiah's father, so we don't really know much about who he is. The month of Kislev is roughly mid-November to mid-December in our calendar. Um, they uh, had, The Jews had their own calendar, different from our calendar. Obviously, ours is a Roman calendar. They had a different calendar, but they were when they were in exile, they were actually under the Babylonian calendar. So the fact that it's being named in a Jewish date kind of points back to them coming back to their own culture and their, their own identity. Uh, the 20th year, it says, but it doesn't say of what. What does that mean, the 20th year? Um, it most certainly is uh, referring back to the reign of Artaxerxes. There are other mentions later on that we'll see, like chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So again, it's referring to that time that Artaxerxes was the king, in the 20th year of his reign. And then the citadel of Susa, it says that they were there. That is the winter residence of the Persian king. It was built by Darius, uh, and so for the winter months, they would go and relax at this, this winter home, which I read some statistics on, and it was absolutely enormous. The home itself was on a hill that was like 225 acres or something like that, and that was just part of the king's compound there. So this was not like a little cottage. This was a massive mansion, but it was the winter home for the king's. Verses 2 and 3, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, that took place about 140 years before Nehemiah wrote this. So he's talking about it as if it had just happened, like the, the, the walls crumbled, the gates are burned, everything's a mess there. And he's sad about it as if it just happened, but what's going on is that there were attempts being made to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, before, when I referred to Ezra going back before Nehemiah, part of what Ezra was trying to do was rebuild Jerusalem. In the book of Ezra, chapter 4, um, Ezra details an attempt made to rebuild the city, to rebuild some parts of the city, some of the structure. And there were political enemies there that didn't like what they were seeing, and they didn't want the Jews to, to regain any power. They wanted to keep them stifled. And so they wrote a letter to the king saying, you know, I see that they're rebuilding, but you need to keep an eye on them because they're rebellious, nasty people, and they're going to come and it's going to kick you in the butt. That's basically what they said. And so the king put a stop to it. So even though the gate, excuse me, the wall and the gates were destroyed about 140 years earlier, what Nehemiah is asking about are the attempts to rebuild. How's it going? I heard that they were trying to rebuild. What happened? How's it going? And the response was that they are the people there are in great trouble and disgrace. The failed attempts to rebuild just reinforced the Jews' sense of helplessness and powerlessness. And so for them to send back some of the exiles, for them to send back Ezra to priest, the priest to reestablish the law would have given them some sense of hope, like, oh, maybe we can be our people again. And yet this attempt to rebuild the city was squashed, and so they kind of lost that hope. It was deflating for them. It was salt in the wound of the disgrace that they were already struggling with. And so in verse 4, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He's lamenting the loss of the Jewish identity. God's promise to Abraham was that I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I am going to give you a land, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And if you, if you consider that became the identity of the Jewish people, as the Jewish nation grew and grew and gained its own identity, it was all centered on that relationship with God. And that relationship with God, remember, was symbolized by the temple, by the physical land. And so when that was taken away, it, it literally stripped the Jewish people of their very identity. They didn't understand who they were anymore, or why they existed, or what happened with God. Did God let them down? And so here Nehemiah is lamenting. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Just a week or so ago I heard a great definition of lament. What does it mean to lament? And it means sorrow rooted in hope. It's not a hopelessness, but your heart is broken. And you're still trusting in God, but you're also acknowledging that your heart is broken. I am not good at lament. It's not one of my spiritual gifts. And I'll tell you why. And I think when I tell you why I'm not great at lament, you'll be able to connect with it on some level. I am not great at lament because when you deal with 
some kind of significant hurt in your life, some kind of trauma or, or whatever it is, a loss of somebody close to you when you're young, getting bullied, it can be so many different things. But when you suffer a hurt like that, your instinct is to push it down, to shove it down deep into your gut. We learn to numb it with different things. Drinking, drugs, ice cream, shopping, relationships. There's so many things. But very often we're using those things to numb that hurt that we have inside of us. And, and we've shoved it down and we've tried to move on. And we try to be tough. Right? In America, we like self-starters. We like entrepreneurs. We like people who are on the streets and they become successful businessmen just by sucking it up and having the grit to do it, right? But very often we do that in a way that still is just shoving the hurt down. It's not healthy. When we do that, no matter what the hurt is, it does not help us. This is something that, that God's been working on me for for probably 10 years now. And every time I think I'm good, he reveals something new about it to me. But very often we think that we are protecting ourselves. We think that if we expose the pain, if we reveal the hurt to somebody, it's going to hurt more. It's going to do more damage to us. And so we try to protect ourselves, but all we're doing is hiding the hurt. About, I think it was the year before we moved down here, uh, Micah, my, my middle son, was out in the driveway skateboarding with Jojo. And they were, you know, boys were dumb. Let's just get that right out there. They were jumping their skateboard off a ramp, right? Which, you know, all right. But then they decided it'd be even more exciting if they went kind of like at the same time, so it was like one after the other. And Jojo went first and wiped out or whatever. And Micah went and kind of it was too late to stop and saw that Jojo was falling or whatever and he would have crashed into him. So he kind of sacrificed himself and did whatever he did and slammed down and broke his arm. Right Now, again, family of boys. Boys get hurt all the time and they're always near death. They're this close to death. They come running in. I think my brain is still in the driveway and you know, whatever it is. So Jojo comes tearing in the room. I'm sitting in the living room. I'm actually at the window right outside, you know, they were right outside the window that I was at. I heard him fall. I kind of knew that sounded nasty. <laughs> Jojo comes running inside. Sarah's in the dining room kind of off to my right. And Jojo runs over to her and says, Micah broke his arm, which, come on. So I kind of laugh it off and I go back to my studying and she's like, what do you mean he broke his arm? She's like, he broke his arm. So meanwhile, Micah, I see Micah coming in like across the front yard holding his arm. Still, you know, I'm still like, oh, here we go. Comes in the front door, and Micah comes straight to me while Sarah's questioning Jojo. And she's like, what do you mean he broke his arm? He broke his arm. I'm like, well, how do you know it's broken? And as Sarah's saying that, how do you know it's broken? I look at his arm, and it's very, he's holding it on, because if you let go, it would just go, <laughs> it was very, very broken. So she's like, how do you know it's broken? I'm like, oh, no, it's broken. <laughs> so, yes, quick run to the emergency room, couple of plates. I was disappointed to find out it, that does not set the metal detector off at the airport. I thought that would be a cool little consolation prize. But Imagine Micah falls, hurts his arm, thinks, oh, mom's going to be ticked. So he just like holds it, doesn't do anything about it. 
what's going to happen? <laughs> is it going to heal? No. Like, best case scenario is it doesn't heal. Worst case is he lets go at some point and it just goes, or, or gets hurt worse, or, or maybe it would heal crooked and he'd have a, a permanent problem. This is true of physical injuries, right? If you cut yourself bad enough, bad enough, Mike, right? If you cut yourself bad enough, you really need to take care of it. Now, bad is relative, <laughs> but if you ignore it, it's not going to go away. It's going to get infected. It's going to get bad. It's going to cause other problems. If you break a bone and you try to ignore it, it's not going to end well for you, right? We all know that about our physical bodies. But then when we get hurt inside, when somebody says something damaging when we're a kid or we get victimized in some way, whatever it is, we think, well, that's different. And so we just shove it down. And we pretend like if we shove it down far enough, we'll pretend like it never happened and, and it'll be okay. But that's the same thing as an arm. Again, we think we're protecting ourselves, but when we shove those hurts down, they're not going away. They're just getting shoved. They're getting infected. They're going to affect your life in other ways. And this is true uh, no matter what hurt you've gone through. So statistically, if you think about this group here, statistically, someone here has been sexually abused. Statistically, many of us have probably dealt directly or indirectly with addiction in some way. Statistically, we may have been neglected as kids. We may have been bullied as a child, and it still affects us today. There are so many things that could have happened to us at some point, broken homes, being victimized in some way, whatever it is that's happened to us, and it hurt us deeply on our souls. And so now we think, well, if I just push it down far enough, if I just push it down far enough, if we continue to hide the hurt, it will not go away. Now I say that partly because that's something that, that God's been working on in my own life for, for years. Um, there was a time when you know, my, I, I've shared that my father was an alcoholic and, and there were some things that, uh, some hurts that I had from that that I didn't even realize until I was like mid-30s. And I went to a youth ministry conference and they had a prayer labyrinth, which, which was just a, like a kind of a maze you walk through and there's different stations and activities and you just stop. There's a, you put headphones on and it guides you through this path and you stop at the stations and there's little activities that you kind of prayerfully go through for different things. And when I went, I went late at night because I didn't want anyone else to be there. So right before it closed, I went so I could walk through it. And the only reason I went as a youth pastor was this might be something like a product that I can bring back to my youth group to help them, right? Because they need help. I'm good, but they might need this. And so I, there, I went upstairs. It was kind of funny. I went upstairs, and there were like three other people in the maze already, the labyrinth. And I put the headphones on, and I'm, I'm ticked off. Like, there's people here. I just want to do this by myself. The first thing the headphones say is, you might notice there's other people here. Isn't that just the way of life? I'm like, shut up. <laughs> so anyway, I start walking through this labyrinth and doing the different activities. And, and again, my mind is just, would this translate to the youth ministry? And third or fourth stop, there's a, 
um, like an aquarium of, of water, tank of water, and there's little smooth stones around it. And in your headset, it says, you know, pick up a stone. So I picked up a stone. Look at the stone. I'm like, yeah, it's a stone. Think about some sin or some hurt that you have in your life that you, you're stuck in. You can't get past it. And visualize that rock as that sin or that hurt. And I went, okay, this is silly. And I'm holding my rock, and it says, now hold the rock over the tank. And I went like this. And it says, now let it go. Prayerfully, let that hurt go to God. And in my head, she keeps going on. Now she's on the next stop. And I'm holding that rock over the tank and literally physically unable to let it go. And it was the first time that God was saying to me, do you realize you have all this stuff inside that you're holding on to and you're not letting it go? So for myself, prying my fingers open to let go of a hurt I didn't even realize I had was part of a, a starting point for me for healing for things that, again, I didn't even realize these hurts were there. But I just kind of brushed them under the rug and moved on with life because life's tough, right? So let's move on because eventually it'll end and we'll be good to go. We'll be in heaven. God doesn't want you to be okay. God wants you to find healing, to be cleansed from the inside out, to be a whole person again. Now, as I meditated on that passage and I was thinking about the, the lament of Nehemiah, the, the hurt that he saw and felt and acknowledged and wept over, my first thought was some of the hurts that, that some of us have dealt with in our life. But then it occurred to me as I was praying through it that this church has gone through a time of hurt. Not too long ago, you had a pastor leave because of some difficult circumstances. And as I bring that up, I want to be very clear uh, that I am not speaking ill of Pastor Jacob at all. There's the old quote there, but by the grace of God go I, right? I'm not speaking ill of him at all. But also I think I'd be doing the church a disservice if we didn't acknowledge that there was hurt caused by that. We can't pretend like it didn't happen. We can't brush it under the rug and, and push it down and numb ourselves with good ministry or numb ourselves with good worship time or numb ourselves with acts of service. That's the same as us taking those hurts that we suffered personally and shoving them down and numbing them with ice cream. And so as I hit that passage where Nehemiah just broke down and wept and fasted and prayed. I realized that our church has suffered hurt too. And as I've preached on prayer and I've talked about rebuilding this church, and this current sermon series is going to be called Rebuild, as we look at what Nehemiah did and the actions he took, I realized that if we, as a church, begin to build on a cracked foundation, it's just going to topple over. You were, what, two years without a pastor after, roughly? So I imagine on some level, as a church, there was hurt during that time. As a church, you, you must have been questioning your identity on some level. And I know you had amazing leadership 
Frank didn't even pay me to say that, but you had amazing people here, not just Frank, but others who stepped into different roles and kept things going. But also, there was hurt. And so, this morning, as we start looking at Nehemiah, I wanted to just pause on this spot. I actually had extensive notes. I did a lot of studying for this morning, and, and I had a lot of ideas and things, directions I wanted to go. And I, I hit this one verse, and I realized, maybe we need to just stop. Maybe we need to pause. As we talked about prayer, as we talked about going into God's presence and seeking his vision and seeking his provision, if there is hurt here, we can't just shove it down and pretend like it's not here. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let me read that one more time and just meditate on the words. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What I want to do this morning is just to pause. As we, as we seek to rebuild, as we seek to go through the book of Nehemiah and see what the Israelites were going through and, and how we can apply that to our own church, I want to stop before we get too far and just acknowledge that hurts were taken on here individually and as a church. I know I've heard from a couple people, not a lot, but a few people who have started to open up to me about the hurts they experienced through that time and through the transition in the middle. And so what I want to do is acknowledge the hurt. Not to push it down, but to let it come up. To let it rise up to the surface and to let it out. And to seek God's healing this morning. If we don't acknowledge that we're hurt, we cannot find healing. If we take that hurt, just like in our own personal lives, if we take it and we, and we hold on to it tight because we're afraid to let it go, then we will always have it with us. And it'll seem like we're doing the right thing. It'll seem like we're protecting ourselves by hanging on to it. But I believe when I hit this verse... I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I believe that God was telling me we need to take that hurt that we've suffered as a church and open-handedly release it to the Lord. And so what I'm going to do is just take, uh, take a few minutes. Allow a time of silence. We're going to ask that the Spirit would look into your heart. And just as I had that, that rock that I didn't even realize I was holding on to hurts, maybe you don't realize the hurts that you've suffered. Maybe you just kind of took it as par for the course in a church. So I'm going to ask that the Spirit would reveal to you any hurt, any anger, anything that you need to process this morning. And then we're going to ask God to bring healing to us as a church. This church may have caused hurt. 
unintentionally to people around us. We're going to ask God to forgive us of that. Let's go before God and pray right now together. Heavenly Father, it is amazing to be allowed into your presence. It's amazing to consider how much you love us. As we read Psalm 25 earlier, I just kept thinking that your love is unconditional. And for myself, I confess that very often I link my understanding of your love with how I'm behaving or how I'm performing. And when I'm doing well, I feel like you love me. And when I'm not, when I'm stumbling, when I'm making mistakes or not performing well, I feel like you don't love me quite as much. And yet that psalm makes it clear that you love us unconditionally. That you seek obedience from us, not because you're a harsh God, not because you're demanding or bossy. It's because you love us. It's because you know what's best for us. And God, we're so thankful for that love that you've extended to us. God, as a church, we just want to come before you now. God, we acknowledge the hurts that we have suffered in our life. We acknowledge the hurts that we have suffered in this church. God, we confess to you that this church may have inadvertently hurt people. And God, we just want to confess that to you. And we ask now, as we leave a time for quiet, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, would fill this room, would speak to our hearts. God, we talked about hearing your voice. Your sheep know your voice. And God, I pray that you would just make it evident to us as you speak to our hearts. Would you reveal to us hurts that we have suffered? Would you reveal to us pain that we're trying to pretend does not exist? Would you reveal to us sin that we have kept hidden? Would you speak to us now, Holy Spirit?
And Father, we acknowledge too that when we have hurts in our in our soul, our instinct is to to hide it. Our instinct is to hold it, to keep it stifled where we feel safe. And yet we know from your word that anything kept in the dark will stay in the dark. We need to bring these things to the light of Jesus Christ. And so God, today we acknowledge the hurt and with great fear in our hearts we release it to you. Today we acknowledge the pain that we've been trying to brush aside for so long. And we release it to you. Father, the sin that we have been struggling with for so long, that we've kept in the dark and hidden, we confess to you today and we bring it to the light. And we ask you to cleanse us through the blood of Christ. God, we pray also for those that have been hurt by this church that are not here. Maybe they're watching from home because it's too painful to come here. Maybe they're going to a different church because it's too painful to come back here. Maybe they're not going anywhere because of that hurt. God, I we confess any role that we have played in that hurt. And we ask that you would forgive us. And Lord, we pray for those people that were hurt, that you would help them to find the healing of Christ as well. God, we want to build this church. We want to build ministries that impact people's lives for Christ. We want to interact with Jesus in a way that touches our souls. And we know that if we keep holding on to the hurt and the pain and the anger and the sin, we will not be able to do that. And so, God, we just ask that you would bring healing to this church today, to each one here. That you would bring healing to our church body as a whole. And may we experience that healing and that grace and that mercy and that love in such a way that it overflows from us to the people around us. And may that ministry be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I had two ending points for my sermon this morning. I'm going to go with the first one because I don't want to drag it out. But what I would encourage you to do is, is not stop that healing process now. If God brought something to your mind, some kind of hurt, some kind of trial, whether it's related to what happened in the church, whether it's related to something that's happened in your past, don't keep it in the darkness. Don't hide it and pretend like it's not there. Bring it to the light. Share it with somebody that you trust. Let them pray over you. 
And church, if someone comes to you and shares something, you don't have to be a counselor or a pastor to, to know what to do. Just listen, hear them out, and say, can I pray with you? And then pray for them. And as we, as a church, as we begin to experience healing, we will be able to pass that healing on to, Christ, to others through Christ. If you want to do some homework this week, read through Nehemiah chapter 1. What you're going to see next week is, is this prayer that Nehemiah offers to the Lord about what's going on in their situation. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, heartfelt prayer. It's a prayer of great humility and expectation. And so we'll look at that next week. This week, my challenge to you is this. We just looked at prayer for four weeks or whatever it's been. Uh, we talked about our heart attitude as we come before the Lord. And I would just encourage you again to, to try out the prayer Wednesday, but I'm going to throw an extra little bit on you this week. I'm going to ask that you try fasting on Wednesday for the whole day. I am, I, as a pastor, I get together with other pastors all the time. And they're like, oh yeah, I was fasting for a month last month. And I'm like, dude, if I skip lunch, I get shaky. <laughs> when I ask you to fast on Wednesday, I don't take it lightly. But join me in fasting, especially if God revealed something to you to deal with. Spend the day fasting. Spend the day praying asking God for healing for you, for your brothers and sisters here, and for this church, and for our community. Can we do that? Very reluctantly, you're like, I guess. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just close this in prayer, Rebecca. Uh, let's, let's just pray again to ask God to continue to minister to us through this week, and then we'll close. Father God, I, I was so struck by... Nehemiah's reaction to what was going on in Jerusalem, that it, it touched him so deeply that he was weeping over his city. And it led him to not just to pray and, and ask you for to restore the city, but, but such a depth to his prayer, such depth to his desire for that city. And we know it wasn't just the wall of the city. It wasn't just the city itself but it was representative of their identity in you. God, would you give us a heart that craves our identity to be so tied up with you that we weep. We weep when we are not in your presence. God, I pray that you would be with us on Wednesday as we seek to fast and have a time of prayer for our hurts for our brothers and sisters, for our church, and for our community. God, would you bring healing to each one here today? Would you bring healing to the souls of those watching online? God, bring us an overwhelming joy when we finally let those hurts go. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bring us joy and peace. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.